You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for this morning's sermon is Acts 19, 1 through 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he drew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that were touched by his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, it is good to be gathered with your people this morning. As has been mentioned already and prayed for, we ask that you would bring comfort and peace to those who are hurting this morning. We pray that you would give us ears to hear the word that you would give us eyes to see what we have not seen before, that you would give us hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We know that amidst our suffering and our grief, there is still a great task that you have called us to. So we pray that in the midst of all that we're facing and all that we're thinking about, 
that you would give us this morning the grace to see the implications of the text before us. And that we would be motivated to engage or to re-engage in fulfilling the Great Commission. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. In an article posted on the Gospel Coalition, our brother Darren Carlson recounts a number of stories of Muslims coming to faith in Christ by means of visions. Here's just one of the stories he shares. The husband of a woman I know became a Christian, Darren writes. He had gone to Greece, but she was still in Iran. He would call her from the refugee camp nearly every day to share the gospel with her. She decided she would need to get a divorce since she couldn't be married to a Christian and remain a good Muslim. So she decided to look up all the verses in the Quran about Jesus. She was shocked to find him there, which then led her to find a Bible. One day, reading the Bible, she recounted, quote, I was in my room alone. And the whole room became white, and I felt completely clean. At that moment, through trusting in Jesus, I became a Christian, unquote. Now, here's a second conversion story, but it's not from Darren. It's actually the testimony of a new Redeemer member, Elizabeth DeCarmo. And many of you will remember hearing it just a few weeks ago. Elizabeth wrote, I was three years old when I came to Christ. I remember that day distinctly. I was upstairs in my bedroom watching my mom garden outside when a man in a pickup truck drove by our little alley. He slowed down close to our house and stuck his head out the window and asked my mom, do you know Jesus? My mom replied, yes, we do. And then he drove off. She writes, I was struck by this encounter. I remember because it dawned on me that the Lord Jesus is everywhere and people don't only talk about him at church. From the time I was very young, my parents have been, had been telling me of my sins and need of a savior. And so that night I asked my mom and dad to come up to my room and they knelt with me by my little bed and I prayed to receive Christ. Friends, both of these stories though they have very different details, they both display the sovereign power of God in bringing sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. It is God who orchestrates and directs every effective evangelistic encounter, whether it's the Muslim woman in Iran or the little girl in Minnesota. If God does not act by the Holy Spirit to draw a sinner to faith in Christ, no one would ever be saved. But the details of every story are unique, aren't they? Our text this morning gives us a front row seat to witness two evangelistic encounters. And from these two encounters, we will find Four truths about evangelism. These are important reminders for all of us as we engage in fulfilling the Great Commission. The first evangelistic encounter is found in verses 1 through 10, and 
Here are the truths we will find. I'll give them to you before we look at them. First, fruitful evangelism demands gospel clarity. Fruitful evangelism demands gospel clarity. And second, fruitful evangelism requires spiritual dependence. First, fruitful evangelism demands gospel clarity. Verses 1 through 7. As Paul continues to travel when and where the Holy Spirit is leading him, Luke records another divine encounter, but this encounter is unique. The text simply says that he found some disciples. That's that's not particularly strange, but the conversation that takes place between these disciples and Paul is a little strange. Look at verse 1 again. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. As Paul met these Ephesians who claimed to be disciples, he He must have noticed something that he thought was a little off. Now, there's no way for us to know what that was because the text doesn't tell us. But but something made Paul suspicious of their claim to be followers of Jesus. So Paul wisely engages them in conversation, asking a fairly basic and straightforward question in verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, why is this Paul's opening question? Well, let's assume that as Paul has met these people and spent some time with them, he's heard them talk and he's watched them live. And as he's done this, he's witnessed something that that has made him suspicious that the Holy Spirit is not present in their lives. I want you to consider what Paul believed and taught about the Holy Spirit, and perhaps this will shed some light on why he asked this question to these people. Writing to the believers in Rome, Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. To the Corinthians, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Listen now to Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Friends, the testimony of Scripture through the inspired writings of Paul is that becoming a Christian and receiving God's Spirit is one and the same reality. Theologian Eckhart Schnabel writes, Paul's question addresses the point of what it means to be a Christian. 
A genuine believer in Jesus is someone who has faith combined with the Holy Spirit whose presence is evident in their lives. Commentator I. Howard Marshall explains even more clearly what's happening in our text when he writes this. These disciples could hardly have been Christians since they had not received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is safe to say that the New Testament does not recognize the possibility of being a Christian apart from possession of the Holy Spirit. Friends, unlike Apollos, who clearly had gaps in his understanding of Christian baptism, if you remember our last study in Acts, but he's described as being fervent in the Spirit, Well, these Ephesians claimed to be disciples but had never truly been converted. And therefore, they had not received the indwelling Holy Spirit. They were believing what they knew and their hearts were inclined toward the gospel, but something very important was missing. Having heard their answer, Paul poses another question, verse 3 again. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. This is where we find similarity between these Ephesians and Apollos. They had an understanding of baptism that was limited to John. They understood and embraced John's baptism, but somehow missed what John's baptism was pointing forward to. For these Ephesians, baptism was a sign of repentance and involved some belief in the Messiah that would come, but it failed to embrace Jesus as the promised Messiah who did come. This is how the late Presbyterian pastor James Boyce explained our text. He wrote, here were these disciples whose hearts had been prepared but who had not yet heard the full gospel. Paul conducted a special ministry with them. And when he began to explain to them that Jesus had come, well, their hearts were ready for the message and they believed at once. Boyce concludes, the Holy Spirit came upon them just as he came upon the disciples in Samaria when the gospel first came to them. This is what we read in verses 5 through 7. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Well, there are many different views of exactly what is happening with these Ephesian disciples. Here's what we know for sure, and I don't want you to miss this. If the gospel was going to continue to advance from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now to the very ends of the earth, it would require gospel clarity and the Spirit's enabling power and presence. So God is doing what needs to be done for his mission to continue to advance. 
Brothers and sisters, what we see in Paul is an example of someone who enters a new place and meets new people, and he faces something challenging. And his response is to make sure everybody has a crystal clear understanding of what the scriptures actually say. He's willing to navigate difficulty for the glory of Christ and for the sake of the nations. This is one reason we want to make sure that each of you understands the gospel. This is why our children are being taught the the gospel story from all of Scripture. This is why we share new members' testimonies, because we get to rehearse the gospel over and over. This is why we choose the songs we do, and why we regularly observe the Lord's table. We witness the baptism of believers Because all of these things work together to make the gospel as clear as it can be. Fruitful evangelism demands gospel clarity. As you're interacting with those who maybe claim to be Christians, maybe they don't, listen carefully and make sure the gospel is clear. Second, I want you to see that fruitful evangelism requires spiritual dependence. We see this in verses 8 through 10. After navigating one challenging situation and seeing God glorified in it, what does Paul do in verse 8? And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Again, it's not strange for us to read that Paul has returned to the synagogue to proclaim Christ with boldness. But it is interesting to note that Luke records the specific length of his teaching. Three months. This seems like it's a longer period of time than he was permitted to teach in other synagogues. But of course, like we've seen so many times before, opposition does come, verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Again, this is not surprising to us. Paul has faced opposition many times before. Some here who'd been listening to his teaching refused to believe the good news concerning Jesus. And as we've seen so many times before, It wasn't enough for them to simply reject the gospel, but they felt compelled to become opponents of the gospel. It says they began speaking evil of the way. Or we might say that they begin to publicly malign the way. So what does Paul do in response to this rejection? Midway Through verse 9, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So friends, think about this. After navigating a difficult situation with the Ephesian disciples, Paul returns to the synagogue to teach. And those gathered in the synagogue are receptive enough for him to teach there uh, for three months. But then they finally turn on him and begin to publicly uh, attack the very core of the gospel message that he's teaching. 
So in an effort to protect new believers and continue to disciple them, Paul gathers them together and he relocates to the hall of Tyranus and God gives him two years of fruitful ministry there, so much so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, why, why is Luke sharing these details with us? Well, I don't know exactly, but I think there's at least one principle we could draw from this. Do you see how dependent upon the Holy Spirit Paul had to be? He had to work through so many significant and tricky questions. Where do I go and when? How much opposition is too much? When am I supposed to stay and endure persecution? And when am I supposed to withdraw to a place of safety? How do I know uh, when to turn from my efforts to evangelize in the synagogue and give my time and energy to discipling young Christians? And when have I invested in discipling believers to the point that I can leave them and be reasonably confident that their faith won't waver? Friends, Paul had to walk in total dependence upon the Holy Spirit. What an example this is to us. Parents, as you seek to lead your children to Christ, commit yourselves to seek the Spirit's leading. As some of you daily interact with unbelieving co-workers, pray for the Spirit's leading. As many of you have a desire to share the gospel with your non-Christian neighbors, rely on the Holy Spirit's direction. This reminds us to commit ourselves to pray, to be dependent upon the Spirit. In fact, the song that we sang just a few minutes ago, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. This should be our prayer every day as we try to navigate the difficulties of life, the confusion of different situations and We wrestle, where where do I go and when do I go there and should I leave this person and move on to this person? Should I keep pressing in? How do I interpret the circumstances that I'm facing? Holy Spirit, guide me. Direct me. Give me wisdom as I navigate life. I don't know what to do. Paul walked in total dependence upon the Spirit. And even though it wasn't easy and it involved many decisions, what was the outcome of the Spirit's direction in his life? Look again at verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Brothers and sisters, when we desire to declare the good news concerning Jesus and we walk in obedience to the word of God, the Holy Spirit will guide us to the right people and the right places at just the right times. In other words, this is the plan of God for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. The work of God is, The work of God will be accomplished by the people of God 
walking in obedience to the word of God directed by the spirit of God. So let's give ourselves to this task in this way. So this is the end of the first evangelistic encounter. Now look with me at the second where we'll find two more truths about evangelism. Fruitful evangelism needs divine power. And then finally, fruitful evangelism produces deep repentance. First, fruitful evangelism needs divine power. We see this in verses 11 through 17. Look again at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. The text tells us about something that was happening that seems a little bizarre, doesn't it? People were being healed and cleansed of evil spirits by simply coming into contact with handkerchiefs and aprons that touched the Apostle Paul's skin. Now, to be honest with you, my first thought when I read this was that it sounds like something you might see on religious television today, right? where someone offers to send you a hand towel that's been touched by your favorite faith healer. And of course, all you have to do to get a hold of this magical towel is send them all of your money. Now, everything you've ever seen on TV like this is an absolute hoax. But what we read about in our text is not. And here's one way we can know this for sure. The emphasis in the text is not on some sort of magical power that resided within these specially touched items. In fact, the emphasis of the text isn't even on the gifts and the abilities of the Apostle Paul. No, how does verse 11 begin? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Friends, this is not a text that presents Paul as a precursor to the modern day faith healer. But this is a text about the sovereign power of God who displays his healing power whenever and however he chooses. In this instance, God chose to glorify himself through healing some who were sick and others who were possessed by evil spirits. And he did it through unexpected and miraculous means. testimony of the scriptures again here is clear brothers and sisters all listen all physical and spiritual healing is the result of God's sovereign power he will use different means at different times and in different places but physical and spiritual healing is never the result of saying just the right words or touching some anointed cloth. It is according to God's sovereign will, and it is the result of his infinite power. 
Friends, this is why, this is why we pray for the sick. Because we believe that God alone has the power to heal. As this second encounter unfolds, our text introduces us to a, a very interesting group of men referred to as the seven sons of Sceva in verse 14. In fact, back up to verse 13, let's read these two verses, 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which apparently was a real thing, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So here's what's happening. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists had become aware of Paul's apparent success as a healer and exorcist. And this group thought they had figured out the secret to his success. It was to use the name of Jesus. That was the magical formula. So if we use his formula, we can do what he's done. So a specific group of men, the seven sons of Sceva, were trying to do this. They were trying to tap into the, what, what they perceived to be the magical power of Jesus' name. And Luke records one of their attempts that you could say backfired on them. They found someone possessed by an evil spirit and they pronounced their magical declaration and what happened? Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You have to believe at this point the sons of Sceva were thinking, I saw this playing out differently in my head. Right? I, I imagine they were a little shocked when the evil spirit actually responded to them. Asking them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? You see, brothers and sisters, the sons of Sceva weren't speaking the name of Jesus as those who believed in him. They were using the name of Jesus as a magical formula for their own purposes. And an evil spirit saw right through their charade. The evil spirit mentions Jesus and Paul because Jesus had the power to drive out evil spirits as the Messiah and Lord. And Paul had the power to expel evil spirits because God had chosen to work directly through him. But the sons of Sceva had no such connection to Jesus. And therefore, they were powerless against the forces of darkness. I love what theologian David Peterson says about this somewhat bizarre scene Luke records. He writes, the scenario pits, and I, I want you to listen carefully to this. The scenario pits miracle against magic. And authentic transmission of divine power against counterfeit manipulation. Even the forces of evil knew the difference between one who truly ministered in the name of Jesus and pretenders. 
notice the outcome of this crazy situation in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Yes, a story like this spreads. Both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, it makes sense to us that news of this event would spread, but why and how would it serve to glorify Christ? How exactly does the Holy Spirit of God leverage this story to glorify Christ? Well, to put it bluntly, when people heard about what happened to the sons of Sceva, they realized that the name and power of Jesus was not something that you mess around with. Instead of flippantly using the name of Jesus as part of a magical and self-serving formula, people began to respect and revere the name of Jesus. In fact, the text seems to indicate that people who didn't believe in Jesus started believing after they heard this story. One commentator puts it this way, the ignominious defeat of the Jewish exorcist by the demon showed the Ephesians that Jesus is a power that cannot be controlled and he will not act as the lackey for anyone who calls on his name. This whole strange encounter served the ultimate purposes of God. It displayed the power of Christ and brought sinners to kneel before King Jesus in reverential awe. But notice, notice that it also put the fear of God back into the lives of some believers who had been messing around with sin. This brings us to our final and brief point. It's the fourth truth about evangelism that we see in this text. Fruitful evangelism produces deep repentance. See this in verses 18 through 20. How can we know? How can we know that the gospel has really taken hold in someone's life? Well, their life is marked by humble repentance. This is the fruit of conversion. And if the fruit of repentance is missing, then there is no gospel root. So with that in mind, look at verse 18 again. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Friends, what a scene this is. As word spreads of what took place with the sons of Sceva and people responded with a renewed sense of reverence and awe for the power of Christ, a group of new believers were moved by the Holy Spirit to come forward and confess their sinful behavior. So let me give you quickly three observations about true repentance as we 
close. And, and I want you to think about your own life when you hear these. Okay, is this what marks my repentance? But I also want to give you a, a grid to understand and evaluate carefully what true biblical repentance looks like. First, true repentance isn't measured. True repentance isn't measured. Notice what marks the repentance of these Ephesian believers. Total openness and vulnerability. Total openness and vulnerability. They confessed and divulged their sinful behavior in the sight of all. Brothers and sisters, when the Holy Spirit breaks the heart of a sinner and grants them repentance, their repentance is not measured. They don't hold back. They aren't primarily concerned with what people think. They just want to be right with God. True repentance isn't measured. It's not held back. Right? Think about the prodigal son who returns to his father. He expects nothing. He begs to just be his servant. He doesn't come back and say, well, I'm sorry for these things, but you need to admit that you did some things wrong as a father too. Now, true repentance isn't measured. And number two, true repentance is costly. True repentance is costly. As part of their repentance, these Ephesian believers have a unique kind of bonfire. And Luke makes a point of telling us the value of the books they burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. Why would he tell us that? Well, I think one Reason is to point out that this is an enormous amount of money. In, in other words, friends, this wasn't an easy decision. This was not an easy decision. But again, the desire of these Ephesian believers is to be right with God. They don't want anything between their soul and the Savior. So their response was one of great humility showing that their allegiance was to Jesus and that pleasing Christ was more important than any amount of money. Finally, and this really summarizes all of what we've read in verses 18 and 19, but true repentance includes more than words. True repentance includes more than words. True repentance is born out in concrete actions that reveal a heart that is turned from sin and to Christ. The repentance of these Ephesian believers begins with confession, but then it moves into action. By burning all their Books dealing with the occult, these believers are revealing hearts that have no plan to ever go back 
to sinning this way. Friends, so often we are convicted of our sin. We confess that sin. But even in our confession, we want to maintain easy access if we ever want to go back. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. It is not. It is not legalistic to stress the importance of changing your behavior and of setting up safeguards in your life to make it more difficult for you to access the sin that you've so often and so easily returned to. Don't just confess your sin, but move beyond saying all the right words and use every available means to cut off access. To cut off access to the sins which will destroy your soul. Now, how does our text this morning end? Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God has been and will continue to work in sovereign power to save sinners in ways that we would never anticipate. But friends, fruitful evangelism, no matter when or where it happens, and no matter the particular group of people God chooses to save, whether it's Muslims being driven from their homes or the children living in our homes, fruitful evangelism demands gospel clarity It requires spiritual dependence. It needs divine power. You can't do it on your own. And it will produce deep repentance. Let's pray together.